The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, and welcome to The Exchange, the Reuters breaking news podcast on business, finance, and economics. I'm Swaha Pashnaik, Global Economics Editor of the Commentary Tree team, and our guest this week is William DeVilder, Chief Economist of BNP Paribas. William, welcome to The Exchange, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Swaha. We're right in the middle of what feels like endless lockdowns and the pandemic. But I'd like for us to look a bit further ahead and to point when we're no longer in stop-start lockdowns, when some sort of normality has returned to life and the economy. One of the things that's preoccupying the economists everywhere and financial markets is whether we are finally going to see inflation and whether this is going to be a time when we see a return to too much inflation. Recently, we've had two economist Larry Summers, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Olivier Blanchard, who used to be chief economist at the IMF, and neither of them are fiscal hawks, uh, quite the contrary, in fact, are starting to sort of signal that there may be too much fiscal stimulus coming down the track and that perhaps it needs to be better targeted if we don't want to risk an upsurge in inflation. Do you think these concerns are justified, William? Well, it is an important question, of course, because what is underneath is the concern that we would be surprised by the change in stance of the American Central Bank or the Federal Reserve. The concern of Larry Summers, in addition, is that if we use the money for certain purposes today, we may not have enough money left to rebuild the U.S. infrastructure, and that is very much needed. And this is also something that President Biden has said recently. The concern about how much you should do at this juncture is still very much uh, about not doing enough. That is related to the labor market situation, which is actually quite awkward. On the one hand, what you see is that you have um, an increasing number of vacancies. Uh, You even have companies that are saying to the Federal Reserve when it is preparing its beige book that they need to pay higher wages to hold on to their staff. But at the same moment, you have an unemployment rate if you correct it for certain biases and so on, like Jerome Powell has done the other day, which is still 10%. In addition, the U.S. economy still needs to create about 10 million jobs to reach the same employment level that was reached before the pandemic. So you really are still in a very challenging economic situation, in particular with respect to the labor market. But the concern really is about, okay, the sudden re-emergence of inflation. I think that that concern is kind of typical when you have recoveries that people say, well, okay, inflation is going to come back. And we've been used so long to low levels of inflation that there's always a feeling like, yeah, but this time may be different. Now, I think what is feeding that concern is that we do see um, anecdotal evidence, also survey evidence that something is moving. What is striking, for instance, is that if you look at business surveys, input prices are on the rise quite significantly, even in Europe. What I mean by that is that more and more companies are reporting that they are confronted with an increase in input prices. So the prices of 
raw materials, but also intermediate goods that they need to buy and to then transform them into a finished product. So that's one element that you um, observe. The second element you observe is that the delivery times are lengthening. And this is very much illustrative of an economy that after having seen such a disruption of its supply side in 2020, that suddenly there was then a pickup in demand and it has created a supply demand imbalance. And one sector where it is, I would say most visible is in the semiconductors. So where you see that there are actually major difficulties in delivering what has been ordered and it's causing um, delays in, in the production of cars, for instance. So you have something which is, I would say, still the consequence of the supply disruption that we have seen, plus also the fact that demand was not moving and then suddenly started to reaccelerate. Um, but then what happened subsequently is, of course, very much driven by how dynamic will the economy evolve and how dynamic will the labor market evolve so as to come to a normal phenomenon of inflation. And what is a normal phenomenon of inflation? That is that you have a significant decline in the labor market, which is then causing an acceleration in wage growth, which is then forcing companies to reflect that in the prices of their goods and services, and which is then triggering more inflation on a lasting basis. Absolutely. You, you talked a little bit uh, earlier about the recovery and how inflation expectations uh, sort of take a while, usually normal recoveries. This is not, however, expected to be a normal recovery, is it? We have people who've had forced savings. And while some people have come out really, really badly from COVID and it's exacerbated inequalities, others have actually managed to build up because they're working from home and don't have to pay for going to travel, sandwiches at work or whatever. There's been a lot of forced saving. And that can come back on tap very, very quickly, in fact. So in, in some sense, uh, let me ask you, how concerned are you about scarring for the poorest, the worst off, um, those who would struggle to get into the labour market at the best of times? And how likely is it that we get this boom? So there may be inflation, but it's masking what's going on underneath the surface, if you like, of the uh, economy. I think underneath your question is the is that that about distributional consequences and uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic had had <clears throat> has had major distributional consequences. It's also um, distributional consequences in terms of um, the type of job you were doing, um, how much you were making, because clearly there's a link between the two. Obviously, that enabled you to um, either work more from home or um, did not enable you to work from home. Um, or the likelihood of losing your job was higher when you're in the lower end of the, I would say, uh, job spectrum. This is also something that is strongly emphasized by the Federal Reserve, um, that there was really important differences whereby you observe that in the higher ending um, uh, range of the spectrum that actually the decline in jobs were more limited and also subsequently the labor market has already improved which is not the case if you're at the if you're at the lower end another important phenomenon is that you also have to acknowledge and, and there again the federal reserve um, has published um, research papers on that 
that the, the policy action on the monetary side also had distributional consequences. You could also say that the policy action on the fiscal side had, had distributional consequences in terms of developments in home prices or developments, more importantly, in financial asset prices. So whether you are exposed in your investment portfolio, in your financial portfolio, you're exposed to the stock market or you're not exposed to the stock market, that makes a big difference. And what you observe is typically that people that are in the lower parts of the income and wealth distribution will have less exposure percentage-wise uh, to the stock market, which has been uh, flying. What that means is that it, it is really underpinning the approach of the Federal Reserve to go for maximum employment, even at the cost of accepting somewhat higher inflation for a certain time to go for maximum employment. And also on the fiscal side, to really make sure that those who have suffered most would also be benefiting from enough support, enough help, so that one, uh, financially, they'll be make, able to make ends meet until the job market recovers, and that subsequently also they are helped to, to find a new job. So these are very important considerations to avoid that what has been a major um, health crisis would end up having a longer-lasting impact <clears throat> in terms of uh, the fabric in society and that you would have uh, a scarring related to um, to the labor market but that of course would then have um, knock-on effects on other aspects as well um, human psychology the feeling of uh, how you how you feel about uh, life uh, well-being all this of course these things are very closely related and that is um, what is making the focus on what you could call inclusive growth and, and paying attention to the distribution consequence of the shock, why that focus and why that attention um, is so important. Um, I mean, it's you. I mean, it's more normal for governments to focus on inclusive growth, and we're seeing it uh, in a big way in the U.S., for instance. Central banks, however, their mandates have usually focused on inflation, and they've usually said delivering price stability or stable inflation is the best way they can help the economy and the widest group of the people in the economy. We are seeing, however, a switch, particularly in the US. How do you see this playing out across this, this side of the Atlantic in Europe, where the European Central Bank still has a much narrower mandate focused on price stability rather than the Fed's dual mandate and hasn't finished its own review of how it uh, applies monetary policy? Do you see the inclusive growth sort of moving its way and evolving also in Europe? Or do you think it will be more a U.S. phenomenon? Well, first of all, what's, what's interesting in the U.S., and I think that uh, the Fed Listens uh, initiative, um, which has been of huge importance uh, in terms of the insight, insights that it has brought, um, has, of course, played a key role. There was already the, um, the view that if you go back to Powell's Jackson Hole speech of, I think, two years ago in Jackson Hole, he was saying, well, we did not really know where the natural rate of unemployment is. So we, um, we just uh, should not have a monetary policy which is um, too proactive, uh, preemptive tightening when unemployment is declining. But their thinking has clearly evolved, uh, as you say, um, and, and, and has led to the view that in the later, for later phases of an expansion, what you observe is that even those parts of the population that have struggled to find a job will also find a job. And that is absolutely important because it means that these people will then have 
to put it in economic slang, uh, will have a, a significant improvement of their human capital, their self-initiation, and so on and so on. Now, the um, the challenge that um, it, it, it's going to be very interesting to state the obvious um, how that thinking will influence the um, ECB. ECB has also organized ECB lessons events, but going back for a second to the Fed events, Fed lessons events, um, one thing that was striking, for instance, is that people were emphasizing so much uh, um, is the job that counts and, and inflation. Okay, uh, why do you want to push up inflation? There's a very different, uh, different perspective if you ask man in the street uh, than if you ask uh, a, a bond market investor, so to say. Now, in the, on the ECB, what you clearly observe is that there is now a broadening, a broadening of the scope. Uh, we've seen that with uh, climate change, and we will have to see how exactly that part is going to take on board. And you can argue that uh, climate change, and then I'll come back to your question on inclusive growth, but there is a link, um, that climate change is not only important in terms of um, risk assessment, uh, where it is obviously very important, uh, but also it has um, a number of bearings on, on how the economy operates, on um, how we grow, but also on, on the health situation, for instance. And then if you think about the health situation, then it's not without importance um, where exactly you are, if you are financially well off or if you're financially um, uh, under stress. So then you have to say, okay, in inclusive growth. And um, we should, as you mentioned, we, we should keep in mind that the ECB has um, an inflation target and that's it. And the complexity of introducing a labor market objective, uh, if it, or, or, yeah, labor market more explicitly, is that there is a huge degree of variation um, in the labor market situations of the Eurozone member states. Some countries have a very low level of unemployment and other countries, uh, sadly, have um, structurally high levels of unemployment. So as a central bank, um, how do you take that on board? And, um, and uh, that is where it's getting very complex because if we, if we end up in a situation that you would have a policy that stays um, very accommodative whilst your inflation is bang in line with your targets, with your target, then uh, inevitably it will trigger uh, debates like, yeah, but unemployment is to a large degree also the result of structural policy in an economy. So why do you think as a central bank that you should that you should continue to run this very accommodative monetary policy, considering that um, in country A, the natural rate of unemployment is higher than in country B. And even though you could join the Fed in saying that it's difficult to identify where exactly that the natural rate of unemployment is, I think it should be perfectly feasible to make an assessment that in country A, it's higher or lower than in country B. So that is where the complexity would end up for the ECB. The other element of complexity, of course, would be that if you would run very accommodative monetary policy whilst your inflation is at 2%, um, <clears throat> inevitably in countries with a 
tight labor market, uh, you would see an inflation moving well beyond uh, the objective. And it could also lead to a questioning of um, the credibility of the central bank, like, well, what is it? Confusion. What is it really after? Is it, is it after uh, uh, lowering unemployment uh, or is it after um, ch- targeting a certain level of inflation? And to add to the difficulty at the, at the Eurozone level, um, we also should keep in mind that in the US, the, 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 the focus on inclusive growth it's sufficient. You can you can look at uh, Jerome Powell's um, speeches and the examples that he gives. There's very clearly a let's say a socio-economic dimension and a socio-demographic uh, dimension that he is bringing when he is quoting numbers. Um, and there again, it, I, I see that um, far more difficult um, to do in the uh, in the eurozone to have that aspect as well. So. Uh, also because okay, you do not have the data um, to um, either you don't have them or you don't have them to a sufficient degree. So I see I see a lot of complexities, even if you would consider to go there. But uh, I also see the, the problem of how how to implement this um, whilst not creating confusion on um, which objective are you really after. Absolutely. We'll come back to central banks, but let me sort of diverge slightly to governments. And you mentioned several times there about the sort of things that governments have also done um, to help the economy, to help the labour market specifically, particularly in Europe. Now, we've seen a debt surge. Um, The Institute of International Finance has put it at something like uh, the debt accumulated by households, corporations, general government will uh, have, well, already have reached in 2020 a record high of something like $281 trillion. This is unseen. This has never been seen before and will at some point have to be paid off slowly, especially by governments. So how does one go about unwinding some of these support schemes? As we've said, there are some businesses which are really hard hit, may be able to bounce back once economies reopen, but some won't. There will be people who will find it very hard to get jobs even after the economy's open, perhaps. How do governments go about unwinding and sort of paying down some of this debt in the coming years? Well, it is, um, it's one of the, uh, the really big longer term challenges and consequences of, of the pandemic. Now, I just would like to nuance um, a tiny bit. Um, it's, it's not about paying down the debt in the sense that given where interest rates are today, that is the average cost of borrowing, and you compare that with um, longer term expected uh, nominal growth. So you compare nominal cost of borrowing with nominal growth. Um, It should be quite easy for advanced economies to stabilize their GDP at the current level. And um, with also we should keep in mind that with with these um, debts correspond assets as well. So um, you, you have um, people who have bought this debt or you have insurance companies who have bought it and, and uh, if, if all of a sudden by, uh, by some magical stroke um, tomorrow a lot would be repaid uh, a lot of people say my goodness what do we have to do now where should we invest in 
but okay to come back to, to to the key point is that you can you can stabilize their gdp at the current level but and and you have a lot of economists and again you mentioned larry summers at the start or or the Blanchard, and they say well or, or paul krugman same thing he said well borrowing costs are so low so we should not be worried um about indebtedness and of course yeah i mean that makes sense, but but my real concern is what do we do next time? What do we do next time? And that's the real thing I think we should focus on in assessing whether the current situation is something that we can, we can accept for a long time, or whether we should still try to do something. My concern is that within I don't know how many years, um, for my part, not before the next ten years, but at some point there will be again a recession. Let's say a traditional recession. So what do we then do? It's very likely that um, official interest rates will not be very high. So again, you come to, you cut rates to zero, then you increase the size of your balance sheet, but your indebtedness has also already, if your indebtedness has remained at a very high level, uh, that means that um, it would be another step in the, in the stairway to even more indebtedness. And the concern I have is that it, it just puts more of an onus on central banks, more of a burden on central banks, because they will have to do a bigger job to avoid that uh, markets will price um, a risk premium, a sovereign risk premium. If you have a country that is now at 150% of their GDP, and then the next recession hits in, I don't know how many years, and it reaches 165 or 170, or I don't know, well, what that means is that uh, normally, uh, normally central banks will need to do even more to avoid that that sovereign risk premium would be priced. And um, so that is what I'm concerned about. Now, in a way, that's the easy part uh, of the story to say that you're concerned. The question is, what do you do? And that is getting really problematic. Um, of course, you see, you see differences between countries. So Germany is already now the debate is intensifying that we need to get uh, things back in order. But I think what what really we, we need to do is that if, um, if the output gap is almost closed and we know that you cannot identify it with sufficient precision, but we will be able to say that we probably are close to closing the output gap, then we should really start talking about a longer term path for public finances. And what is striking is that if you compare the conduct of monetary policy with fiscal policy is that monetary policy is very much, I would say, rule-based. Rule is that um, we have an objective and the, the, the objective is the rule. It's uh, reaching a certain level of inflation. And um, whereas with fiscal policy in the vast majority of countries, you do not have these fiscal rules. And of course, one should not adopt fiscal rules a bit like locking the steering wheel and then driving down a twisty mountainous road. That, that is not going to work. But at least setting a framework, setting a path, a longer term ambition, which goes beyond the current government, by the way, and this is really important, which goes beyond it, will at least force a debate in parliament like, so many years ago, this government has set this rule, and how does the current government uh, look at that? Does it think that uh, it's worthless? Does it think that the environment has changed? Does it think that we should need to do more? So the fact that 
these rules at a certain moment in time have been put forward, I hope would trigger debate in Parliament about what do we think about them now. Whereas if you do not have rules, um, you just, well, you, you just have to hope that enough people would be concerned about the, the developments in public finances uh, to put it on the agenda. And that is why I think we should, we should have rules which, which are in place, but without using them in a dogmatic way, but simply so that it, it triggers a debate uh, every year, where are we and, and are we on the right path? Or if we are diverging, how, so we, how should we try to, uh, to make up uh, for the lost ground? How optimistic are you that these sort of rules can be sort of struck and observed in countries, given that if you look at the Euro Eurozone as a whole, we've had the Euro for just over two decades now, and the rules are supposed, were supposed in the Eurozone, they've been suspended because of the pandemic temporarily, but were supposed to be applied across, you know, governments over time, it doesn't matter which political party is in power in which country. Having said that, I mean, for some countries, these rules, EU budget rules, have been honoured more in the breach than the observance, as the phrase goes. So yeah. how op optimistic are you that these rules can be observed given governments everywhere will come up for re-election? Yeah, it's a very challenging issue, but um, what uh, I, I tend to be optimistic in nature, so perhaps uh, you should not cross the barrier of becoming naively optimistic, but just to, to, to show um, it is possible to agree on something. Uh, first of all, um, the, the, the right uh, decision was taken to uh, to put the stability and growth back um, in the fridge for the time being, so that it's not a constraint on in the reaction policy reaction to the pandemic. Secondly, um, next generation EU was a uh, huge uh, positive surprise in terms of the swiftness and what came out of it. At the same time, I think it's also something that now forces government to be serious about how they will run their public finances and, and, and also at European Union level in the revamping of the stability and growth pact. So the plea I'm making is that you have something which at European Union level um, is uh, reintroduced and and is, I would say, more realistic than, than what we had in the past. Uh, if you think about uh, the recommendations of you need to bring down your excess uh, level of indebtedness over so many years uh, to the Maastricht criteria, I mean, please, um, it doesn't work. Um, but if you have a European Union fiscal rule and then you accompany that also with uh, national fiscal rules, then hopefully there will be more lack of a convergence of ambitions. Whereas I think in the past, it was more like a conflictual. And, and I'll, I'll be the first one to say that it's very difficult, it's very challenging. Um, you cannot, of course, commit beyond, um, beyond the current um, government, but as, as I said earlier, I think by formulating a rule, by formulating a, a path of public finances, you're forcing a debate. You're forcing to take uh, a stance. If, if the government says, well, uh, we completely disagree with the path that has been put, put forward with the former, by the former government, 
okay, fine. I mean, it's a government that's running the country, but at least it will then have made a very clear statement and it will be held accountable because it has been so vocal in saying, well, we just do not want to um, stick by that path because this and this, it will also need to explain why it does not want to. And then it's up to, um, to people uh, when there is an election um, to express uh, their viewpoint. Absolutely. And do you have any sympathy for those um, in several countries who would want um, this productive investment, the sort of investment that's going to raise the long-term growth potential to be excluded from debt? It's sort of an incentive to make those sort of investments for the government and sort of carrot and stick wise. Uh, you have lots of sticks at the moment, but this would be a carrot. I don't know whether you have any sympathy with that point of view. Yes, well, it goes back to um, kind of the old approach, which um, an old is not pejorative here, uh, which is to say that, well, if we make investments, um, it will have uh, return on investments, will, which will be a multiple of the borrowing cost. That's exactly the situation that we have uh, today. So um, in the past, I think the general quote-unquote rule has been, or the attitude has been, to um, to say that, well, we have a uh, pressure on public finances and what we will do is we will cut back on public investments um, and then um, we will use the um, tax proceeds for something else. And okay, in the short run, you kind of understand why that is, but uh, in the long run, it has, um, it has negative repercussions. It has repercussions in terms of the quality of infrastructure. Now, uh, everybody is uh, saying the U.S. well uh, is being acknowledged, but um, well, a couple of years ago in Germany as well, there were big debates on uh, the dire state of a lot of bridges, and and seen that sadly in, in other countries as well, by the way. And um, so infrastructure, that's of course going way beyond roads. It's it's a digital infrastructure and so on. So you can argue that um, investments has an influence on the competitiveness of a country. Um, it has an influence on the, the, the capacity of a country to, um, to innovate and, and on potential GDP growth, uh, etc. So yeah, that, that's very important because what it does mean is that it reduces your degrees of freedom as a government uh, to address your um, your budget deficit, and then it's becoming uh, more difficult because there's no escaping. You will have to make choices. However, what is absolutely key is that the um, the easiest way to trendwise reduce your indebtedness is that you are able to um, increase the gap between uh, your growth and your the cost of of borrowing. And um, so if you are able by the policy that I just described uh, to generate in the longer run a faster rate of growth because your potential GDP growth has increased and you're more innovative, more attractive as it is today for direct investments because your, your children um, get a better education and, and, and people that need uh, on-the-job training uh, can find a new role because they've had the training and so on. Uh, meaning lower level of natural rate of unemployment, all these things will be instrumental in easing your debt burden. That, that's 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 the, that's key point. So, uh, growth strategy is is of crucial importance. 
And then the other part, and that's, I think, a very difficult one in society, is to say, well, do we need to, to spend money on this or do we need it to spend on that? And this is the, non, uh, the non-investment-related um, budget. And, um, and where we have to be realistic, uh, the demands are huge. The demands are huge because of population aging, the um, uh, bearing it has on, on the funding of retirement, uh, in the pay-as-you-go system, <clears throat> the bearing it has on, on healthcare. In addition, the pandemic has also shown us that uh, a lot of investments in healthcare are needed as well. Yeah, it's 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 all very challenging. And But as I mentioned, if you have a, a path for public finances and you realize that by protecting investments that you can have an influence on your uh, longer term growth in the economy. I think these are very important elements to take on board in the conduct of fiscal policy and to make sure that your indebtedness becomes less of a concern. Let me come back to central banks. I mean, you've said a couple of times that, you know, it's possible to cope with higher debt burdens given where interest rates are today. and also that this is manageable at the moment. However, how concerned are you that this sort of the debt burden that we have and the need to ensure the financing conditions, both for governments and companies, which are, you know, the government are financing rates are after all the benchmark for the wider economy, that these remain manageable. Basically, the problem is that this locks central banks into keeping rates very low forever, basically, because as soon as you start thinking about raising rates or actually raising rates, the impact that would have, the unsettling impact on bond markets and borrowing conditions would be really unsettling for the economy. And so they're trapped. Well, and for the central bank as well, because let's not forget that um, to the extent that they carry a big balance sheet with uh, long duration government bonds, um, if they are uh, in the process of tightening monetary policy and causing long-term bond yields to rise, uh, the market market impact on their balance sheet will also be considerable. Of course, that will not stop them from uh, from acting, but it just it it adds to the uh, description that you give. You have to add it to the list of uh, those who would um, suffer from that. But eventually, they, they will they will have to uh, they would they would have to react um, in case inflation ends up um, moving beyond their objective, which which in US speak now means uh, inflation being higher and longer than a moderate overshoot of the objective. So it's, it, it's and, and the necessity of formulating in this way shows you, I would say, the, the kind of complexity of analyzing central bank policy, at least for reserve policy, uh, because the objective of average inflation targeting is more difficult to interpret because the, the temporary overshoot temporary has not been defined. And I think it's fully understandable why it hasn't been defined uh, because it all depends. And the, the moderate overshoot moderate has not been defined either because you do not want to lock yourself in by saying if we overshoot 50 basis points during six months, we will act. But given the fluidness or the um, say vagueness of, um, of the objective, you will have market expectations that start to, um, to anticipate. 
but they have, what will they start anticipating? Well, they will start to anticipate the reaction function, which is also not clear, because when will the when will the fat react? So <clears throat> um, now this this is happening in an environment where that fatty accommodative for longer um, has pushed up uh, valuations, um, the stock market valuation, um, housing prices has narrowed corporate bond spreads uh, and so on. So what, what that means is that the kind of the change of era, when you start to move in a tightening environment would then be, uh, would then be bigger, could actually end up becoming more sudden, which by the way, could also mean that uh, a monetary tightening that the Federal Reserve would contemplate uh, will to a large degree be done by markets, uh, by correcting, which by the way is, is something that um, may be an issue for the central bank because mm -hmm. if the hope for the central bank is that we would reach federal funds level at sufficiently high level to be able to move them back to zero um, if ever necessary, that would become more difficult if the market the market adjustments uh, do part of the job of the monetary tightening. So what that means is that in the old world where the financial sphere was having a bigger weight in the economy, um, it meant that if you look at financial and monetary conditions, the monetary conditions were the key factor in causing a tightening. If you have an environment where because of many years of very accommodative monetary policy, uh, financial markets reach valuation levels and moreover in terms of size they have grown so much they have as an aside also grown because of quantitative easing let's not forget that uh, well it means that in the tightening the financial aspect of the tightening will play a bigger role and the more financial prices tighten the less you need to do on the monetary uh, traditional monetary tightening so I think it's very fascinating that you kind of um, you try to solve something, but then you observe that um, next time around your job becomes actually more difficult uh, to address the the crisis at hand uh, at that time. It sounds like some sort of Greek tragedy you're describing, William. Um, okay. <laughs> um, let me, we've covered a lot of ground. Let me sort of try and wind up the conversation perhaps by asking you, you say you're an optimist by nature, but let me ask you first, one thing that looking ahead you're concerned about and one thing then to follow, you know, cleaving to your natural inclination that you're optimistic about in the coming three, four years. Well, the concern I have is um, I think it's you have an, a non-economic concern at the start, which of course has profound economic consequences. But the concern is that um, that well, perhaps we're just too optimistic in in assessing what uh, in 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 assessing our ability to come to grips with um, with the virus. So, but that is like okay. I, I think that that is. The big concern that everybody has, and if we get it from there, it, it just changes. Um, but it has; it's very important for the economy um, because the the overwhelming effort that has been undertaken in 2020 and in 2021 as well, uh, we absolutely need to avoid ending up in a, in a situation where we say, "Well, can we still afford this?" 
uh, until now that question fortunately has never been asked we never had to ask that question can we still afford it but um, imagine that the, the new variants would be very problematic then uh, okay we need to throw more money at it that's fine but then it, it just all the discussions that we have had here and, and that we have in the analysis in the media and so on it's like okay uh, so many extra GDP points uh, and, and a big extra. What does that entail? Moreover, um, the distribution aspects, the sector aspects, uh, which are tremendous and so on. So that, that's, a, that's really the big concern. And that's why um, if we all work together, um, including uh, being very disciplined in terms of uh, the social distancing, the masks, and so on. Uh, then, uh, okay, we can put that. We can put that aside. Only more optimistic or more hopeful sides is that we have uh, first uh, as just if where we are today, and this is this is uh, fascinating, and it ties in with the very first topic we discussed on inflation. What, what is striking is that the manufacturing sector is doing really well, really well. And, and then I wonder and, and discuss that very often with the team is to say, well, but then in the services sector or that part of the services sector that has been suffering from, from lockdown restrictions and et cetera, um, if that also gets in motion, what kind of dynamics will that bring considering that manufacturing is already doing so well? Whereas if you, are a if you have a traditional recession, both suffer uh, manufacturing more than services actually and, and both then try to get back jointly on their feet. Here manufacturing is already doing very well if you look at business service surveys. So that's that can bring an element of surprise including with the pent-up demand and the excess savings that at least um, some parts of the population have been uh, able to, uh, uh, to accumulate. Um, so that's the kind of the, 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 the short-term optimism I would nurture. Um, but then the horizon that you put forward, well, I think we will have we will have massive investments. Um, there's massive investments in terms of the, the climate change, of course, um, which has become even more dominant as a topic following the pandemic. The digital investments, um, use of technology, of course. So I think all this will mean that there's just a lot going to happen in many sectors and that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an optimist in terms of what technology can bring, uh, what, what the brains of engineers and so on, what they can bring. And then I think as economists, we just have to try to come up with advice. Okay, uh, uh, there's, there's also the reverse side of the medal. Uh, those who lose out on, on technological change and um, what you should need to do and so on. But I think also look at, uh, at the Biden administration now, there's just a lot that is going to happen uh, in so many sectors in terms of um, investment requirements and 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 that um, well that that I think should give a um, a favorable a favorable backdrop, but at the same time I, I can also give you a list of concerns uh, that we need to uh, that we need to be very mindful of. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, William. But thank you so much for taking the time to join yeah, us for such pleasure. a wide ranging conversation. 
And thanks to all of you for tuning into this episode of The Exchange, which is produced by Freddie Joyner. You can find other interesting conversations like this one on your favourite podcast platform or on our website, breakingviews.com. See you next time.